1: Welcome to Real Vision. It's Monday, October 19, 2020, just after market close in New York. This is the Real Vision Daily Briefing. I'm Ash Bennington, joined shortly by our managing editor, Ed Harrison. But first, the day's stories with Jack Farley.
2: Thanks, Ash. U.S. equities faltered today with all three major indices down and biopharma and real estate down the most particularly mall REITs are feeling the pain. CBL Properties on Friday announced that it would skip a debt payment, and Pennsylvania Real Estate Investment Trust is on the brink of bankruptcy. The residential real estate market, on the other hand, is by all apparent signs continuing to roar with the NAHB housing market index posting a strong reading of 85 today ahead of the 83 that was expected. The equities that are up today, that are in fact leading the market, are actually the reopening stocks like United Airlines, Norwegian Cruises, and Royal Caribbean Cruises. Royal Caribbean announced a deal on Friday to secure an additional billion dollars in financing, both in common equity as well as in convertible bonds. In other news, the Nasdaq bears are taking their foot off the gas pedal. Traders had piled on short positions in late September, but over the past week, net speculative positions in Nasdaq mini futures surged by the most since 2007. And lastly, movie exhibitor Cineworld continues its search for financing, whereas its American competitor, AMC, is rallying as New York State is set to allow theaters to reopen this Friday. Betting on a continued reopening proves to be a high-risk, high-reward trade, especially as COVID-19 infections accelerate in Europe and the U.S. I know Ed and Ash have a lot of thoughts about how uh, the ongoing pandemic will affect the economy, so let's go back to them. Ash?
1: Thanks, Jack. Welcome back, Ed.
3: Looking good, Billy Ray. Looking good, Lewis. Hey, no, you know what? I, I look, see what I got for you here. Uh, it it was sent to me. I just got it today in the mail by one of our lovely subscribers. It's, it's shirt. So, it, you know, when, when I say what I'm supposed to say, which is looking good, Billy Ray, you're (laughs) supposed to say feeling good, Lewis. (laughs) You (laughs) know, I had for this present. I had no idea you had that on underneath
1: your uh, underneath your uh, jacket, and uh, mine, I guess, is yet to arrive.
3: Yeah, uh, I know it's kind of funny because uh, mine was sent from New York to D.C., and yours was sent from New York to New York. But I, I got mine stuck in the package room. Maybe we'll have to find. Yeah, out. that's that's probably it. <laughs> well done, sir. Well done. So, um, Ed, what are you looking at today? Yeah, so I'm looking at the Chinese GDP numbers. I'm looking at some of the data out of Europe, saying that there's a potential double dip there, and then I'm trying to put it all together to think about, you know, uh, what this means for Q4 and Q1, uh, and and also coronavirus as the the backdrop for all of that. And how are you putting it all together? Yeah, you know, the way that I'm putting it together is that uh, it's the novel coronavirus pandemic. And how various countries have fared economically, uh, that and and what policies they put into place to control the virus, that is really driving a lot of the narrative that we see now. Both in terms of how, for instance, uh, the Europeans might go into a double dip, and also how well the Chinese are doing relative to expectations, say three to six months ago. And so I think that that's really how I'm thinking about it. And then you can extrapolate that out to the United States, uh, which we can do at some point later on in the conversation. Yeah, and it's a combination of healthcare
1: policy uh, and economic slash industrial slash corporate slash business policy uh, in all of those places that lead uh, to not just the healthcare outcomes but also uh, the economic outcomes.
3: Yeah, and you know, I wrote up a post on my, my site, a uh, newsletter article. Just sort of to put some uh, thought to it. Uh, And I think that uh, generally speaking, the framing that I'm thinking about is that, uh, you know, how I I put this in April of six months ago, and I think the framework still works. The question is, is what is the sort of the paradigm to think about in terms of how you can achieve minimal economic disruption from COVID 19? And I think that a lot of countries uh, have done. Well, some countries are doing better than others. And what we're going to see in the second wave of coronavirus is that there's going to be a real uh, differentiation in terms of how countries are doing. And that's definitely going to see Asia, in my view, do better relative to countries in, say, Europe or North America.
1: Yeah. And to put an exclamation point on that, perhaps, uh, you know, another off day, uh, U.S. uh, equities so we see S&P 500 down 1.63% uh, to 3426 here today the Dow off 1.44% uh, uh, closing at 28195
3: so uh, you know going back to the whole concept ash of where this takes us in terms of the numbers uh, of, uh, that are related to coronavirus it's the numbers that came out of china Overnight. And uh, it's the Chinese uh, economy. They're showing us what happens when you take the pandemic seriously. And also, obviously, when you throw in some debt fueled stimulus for a good measure. Just at a macro level, the Chinese gross domestic product rose 4.9% in Q3 uh, compared to the same quarter in 2019. That's faster than the second quarter rise of 3.2% over the year ago period although it is somewhat below the 5.5% forecasted rise uh, for economists that uh, Bloomberg asked. Uh, right. Bloomberg said that I think makes sense is, is that the economy expanded 0.7% in the year, meaning that the world's second largest economy regained all of the ground it lost in the first half of the year. So you know, the economy went down in a massive way in the first half of the year, and now it's up 0.7% on the year to date. So that tells you that the Chinese have now recouped all of the losses from coronavirus, and now they're off back to the races again and The reason obviously is 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 that uh they've dealt with the coronavirus well but Be- before I stop, let me just give you some more info here. The New York Times said that uh, you know, obviously, it started with affluent uh, people and people living in the export-oriented coastal economies. That is, after we went through the stimulus-led and infrastructure spending and industrial production-fueled growth, uh, it, it, people in the affluent uh, and uh, exported-oriented coastal provinces, they t- kicked in with their spending. But even in Wuhan, uh, you know, you see more consumer spending now. Uh, the the New York Times was saying that you've had to line up to get into many restaurants in Wuhan, and for restaurants that are popular uh, on the internet, the wait is two to three hours. And this is at the epicenter of where the the coronavirus first emerged. Yeah, you know there may be some net losses based on the, some
1: of the foregone uh, economic growth during the period that it was slowing. But look, China is basically back to trend. Uh, A so they're they're growing uh, effectively. Thirty percent of global uh, economic growth is coming from China.
3: Thirty percent. Yeah, that's an astounding amount. And and by the way, the number, uh, uh, the four point nine percent number was actually lower, largely because they had a massive import number. Yes. The uh, the number of imports that came into China was much higher than expected, which is a sign actually of growth. That is, is that they wanted more imports, they uh, imports they needed more imports because consumption growth had grown that much. So you know the bottom line is 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 that uh, China has weathered the storm, whether you think you you uh, you know there's debt fueled growth there and uh, it's infrastructure led that doesn't matter. At this point, the consumer is back in business in China, and they're back to growing. And 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 you know when you look at all the other countries in Asia, which have done really well in terms of the coronavirus pandemic, you have a whole block of countries that's doing really well uh, and centered in some uh, respects around China. There's a whole Asian block that's doing well. I know I spoke to Peter Bookbar uh, two or three weeks ago, and he was saying, that if you had to take a long-term perspective about the coronavirus, he would be, you know, long Asia because because of exactly that reason. Right. And for those of you who don't live the economic formulas the way that Ed does,
1: uh, GDP is C plus G plus I plus NX. Uh, so it's consumption, uh, government spending, uh, and uh, the NX component is net exports. I is investment. NX is net exports, uh, which is. Uh, Exports uh, minus imports. And that's why the import number pulls GDP down when it rises.
3: Good. You know, and and it's good that you say that because, uh, just as an aside, we have two explainers that came out over the weekend from Roger uh, Hurst and also from Stephen Van Meter. And, you know, I think that people really enjoy the fact that you can break stuff down. Uh, some of the people who are on the platform, uh, we throw out concepts that they're not as familiar with. So it's always good to uh, to break it down for people. Yeah. And, you know, the interesting thing to think about here, of course, is that uh, we know that
1: consumption declined, uh, investment declined, and government spending is what's risen uh, globally. As you said, the support that the Chinese and indeed in the U.S. that we got from fiscal policy.
3: Yeah. So uh, the Chinese are back to where consumption is really... The the gangbusters part without the government spending to hold it up, whereas right. in the United States, you know, consumption has has risen uh, significantly, but uh, a lot of that has been fueled by transfer payments from the government. Yeah, and I was struck by Jamie Dimon's comments as we talked about on
1: a prior episode of uh, RVDB uh, that he basically starkly said that look, this is this is being driven by government stimulus in the form of unemployment
3: yeah uh how long that can that last before you have an organic uh, growth model? well the the answer we see in China, as long as you get rid of the virus uh, or you keep the virus at bay largely at bay, uh it, it only has to last a little bit, but the longer the the worse you do in terms of virus mitigation, the more uh, sort of localized shutdowns, the more economic disruption you're gonna have, and the result is the more. You might need government to have a make good on the lost consumption and the lost output as a result right. of that. Yeah, and the declines from today that we were talking about, another time to throw in the amid, uh, amid
1: speculation that there may not be a deal reached uh, on stimulus. That's uh, where markets are trading right now. Pricing in, whether or not government stimulus seems uh, to be a higher or low probability.
3: you know, I saw something about Dow transports hitting a, a high level, and that, that's very bad, you know the Dow theory. Uh, in terms of uh, what, it's, what it says about the economies rolling over. So I thought that was kind of interesting. Yeah. Now, let me uh, switch tacks for a second uh, and talk to you a little bit about what's happening in Europe, because there's been a lot of coronavirus flaring in Europe. And you know the way that I would describe it is through the Financial Times, which had a, an article that came out. It talked about Europe going into a double dip. Um, economists are warning that these, these rising coronavirus infections and uh, the restrictions that governments are putting on as a result of that uh, to restrict people's movements, that that's really going to dent the, the recovery. And we're talking about Germany, you know, France, the UK, Italy, Spain, Netherlands, Belgium, a whole raft of different countries that are putting on these kinds of restrictions. I saw an article um, earlier today about Wales going through a national lockdown. So the whole region of 2.3 million people, or there was a region of 2.3 million people that was being locked down. Now it's the entirety of Wales being locked down. Obviously, that's going to be very negative for a growth in in the UK. Uh, And so really what the WHO is saying, Europe, if they don't get the coronavirus under control, if they don't take measures at all, you could see a wave in Europe uh, in the fall through to d- January that it has, sees death rates five times the level that they were in the first wave. So if you remember Italy and Spain and the UK and places like that, the things that were happening there—they're talking about overall five times the level of uh, of um, mortality. So that's uh, that—that's really cause people to uh, to start to think we need to do something here yeah
1: and a question I would very much like to ask you as you weigh uh, all of the models that are in place elsewhere in the world and you evaluate the relative strengths and weaknesses both on the healthcare policy side and on the economic uh, and industrial policy side what do you think is emerging? as the suite of best practices uh, to control the virus. I know we talked about Sweden uh, in the past. You're interested in Norway as well. Obviously, you're following very closely what's happening here in the US, the successes that the Chinese have had, uh, notwithstanding uh, the fact that they don't uh, have this sort of open society that we do, and it's easier for the command sector of the e- economy uh, to control things. What are your insights about what's, what's working and what's not working?
3: Yeah. So, uh, you know, we had a a big debate on uh, uh, the the feed from Friday when I was talking about Sweden. And, you know, I think it is probably time for me to give up uh, using Sweden as any sort of uh, um, example, because first of all, it's controversial in general. But secondly, they did uh, very horribly at the beginning of the coronavirus by not locking down. And even now, of the four Nordic countries, they're in third place in terms of the the creeping up of uh, of uh, infection rates. So I, I wouldn't necessarily use Sweden as the uh, the example. I think that where they're the example is uh, where uh, you know from the beginning they've tried to say that it's it's a balancing act uh, between how well you keep your economy open and how well you control the disease. But in terms of actual execution of the disease, I would say that you know, you you've hit on uh, two or three countries there that I would look to. Uh, China has done an incredible job, as we just talked about, but they've taken very harsh authoritarian measures to get there. That's simply not possible in uh, Western-style democracies. Uh, New Zealand has done the best job of all the Western democracies or Western-style democracies, but they're an island nation, and they can take advantage of the fact that they uh, you have to fly in in order to get to New Zealand, and they can control the borders very assiduously as a result of that. Of the countries that are integrated within the Schengen area and you know where they have more open borders, I would say that Norway is superior to Sweden. And you know this goes back to um, the comments that we had in the uh, uh, comment section from our Friday uh, uh, DB. I'll, I'll definitely say Mia culpa for taking the whole Sweden paradigm a little bit uh, too far. And uh, Henrik, I'll call him out in particular for talking about, no, let's not use uh, Sweden as an example. Use another country. Norway is a perfect example. If you look at uh, the numbers um, before they did the lockdown, they did an incredible job on the lockdown, and if you look at the numbers now in terms of the infection rates, Norway is doing uh, the best of the Nordic countries. Norway, followed by Finland, followed by uh, Sweden, followed by Denmark. So I would say that they are the ones uh, that are doing the contact tracing, the testing, uh, and and also all of the social distancing protocols that are necessary to keep that 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 balance.
1: You know there are just so many moving parts. This is so incredibly difficult to do in real time, uh, and unfortunately, the decisions need to be made in real time. You know, it reminds me of the uh, quote we we're talking about. Asia uh, to uh, Cho Choen Lai. Uh, what do you think about the uh, French Revolution? Too soon to tell. Unfortunately, uh, we need to make these decisions very quickly uh, in order to save lives and to preserve the economy. So it's it's very challenging. It's also probably worth thinking about the differences uh, in uh, between the ROC, the Republic of China, Taiwan, and the PRC, uh, mainland China. Uh, Taiwan has also had some, some great successes. But precisely as you say, Ed, about New Zealand, obviously a, a small island nation, easy to quarantine, much easier to manage borders somewhere. Uh, where, you, where you're surrounded by ocean. It's a very difficult and challenging time. You know, the more that I read about Sweden, uh, one of the things that it seems uh, is the one of the great unknowns here is this question of herd immunity. There are some uh, who speak of herd immunity as the great saving grace that is ultimately going to uh, begin uh, the end of this crisis. And on the, on the flip side, there are people uh, who talk about herd immunity uh, as uh, this magic pixie dust that people are uh, attributing magical powers to that's simply not going to arise, and these are people in the healthcare community. So it's very challenging to understand where all the moving parts come down, where all the variables sort out, uh, and very challenging to have to make those decisions in real time when people's lives are at stake uh, and uh, the economy uh, continuing to function. It is a
3: very challenging time. It is, and uh, this this whole concept of herd immunity. The problem with the herd immunity, uh, I think, it's twofold. One, it has to do with the uh, the number of people that you put at risk and the mortality rate associated with thinking about herd immunity as sort of the end game. But the second, which I find more pernicious, is uh, mutation. Uh, Interestingly, uh, there was an article in uh, Swedish uh, that I read very recently uh, talking about uh, the fact that they found in Sweden uh, one of the first uh, cases of reinfection. And yeah. this is a person who got infected in May and then was reinfected in August by the coronavirus. This person actually, when they looked at, they sampled this, the coronavirus strains that they were infected by, the difference between the first strain and the second strain were, were was 10 different areas where the coronavirus had mutated. In fact, the mutation was large enough for them to say that essentially it's as if this person was infected Uh, not reinfected, but infected twice by two different coronavirus uh, uh, strains. And so when you think about herd immunity and the whole concept that you become immune, well, how long do you become immune? And if uh, all the people in the population are uh, being exposed to the virus, the more people that get exposed, the more mutation you have, and therefore the more likely that re-exposure to coronavirus will result in a reinfection. So Again, you know, the whole thing is very murky. We're still in the beginning uh, of this. And I think that the the best thing that we could do is concentrate on any uh, new normal go forward strategy that can last for months and years into the future without people uh, having what I would consider policy fatigue. Because policy fatigue, which is what we've seen all throughout Europe, all throughout uh, North America... That's where people stop following the rules. uh, And then you get the the R factors going over one, and then you have these lockdowns as a result. And and that's negative for everyone.
1: Yeah. I mean, I'm, you know, regard this with such great humility in terms of the way that I approach it. It's very clear that there's considerable disagreement in the medical community, the people who know this best. And, you know, then you get two guys like us who are much more comfortable talking about finance and economics. uh, And there's always a risk. Of getting out over our skis here when we talk about this. But at the same time, this really is the key driver of everything that's happening in the global economy. And there's really no choice but to dive in and try and do the best that we can as we analyze and quantify what's happening with the disease, with the data points, and also the consequent numbers uh, that are coming out uh, in the wake of those uh, of those results. There's just no, there's just no choice but to have to dive in and discuss it.
3: Yeah, and let me just say, if you want to be forward-looking and uh, p- put the, uh, the pinpoint on it in terms of the finance and the economics, the Europeans we've seen the numbers go up in Europe. They've been creeping up, and now they're filing, now that people are going in, they're going up in a big way, and it's created a backlash in terms of these lockdowns. And at the same time, the WHO is talking about uh, you know, mortality rates uh, mushrooming there. If that's what's going on in Europe, is it not true that we should expect the exact same thing to happen in the United States, given the amount of policy fatigue that we've seen in the American populace? You think about the outbreak that's actually happening right now in the upper Midwest. We're talking about places like Montana, North Dakota, South Dakota, Michigan, uh, Wisconsin. Those are places where the levels are going up. Uh, I would suspect that if what the WHO is saying for Europe is true, then it's equally true for the United States. And at some point, uh, those co- those uh, states, they're going to, have to face the, the question, do they lock down? Do they take a draconian solution? Uh, or do they uh, let those numbers uh, spiral out of control? I believe at some point, a combination of consumer behavior and government mandates will mean that there's going to be an incredible amount of lost production and lost consumption because of uh, you know policy fatigue, people just not following the rules. So the downside risk, uh, as much as it is for Europe in terms of a double dip, it also exists for the United States. I think that's negative for risk assets. Yeah. And I think that that's 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 bullish for safe assets like U.S. Uh, Treasury securities. So where we are now in terms of you know approaching eighty basis points on on the ten-year, I think you could see that number fall, get cut in half at some point uh, over the next three to six months.
1: Yeah, yeah. It seems at very least it would be naive not to consider that a possibility after what we've seen in Europe in terms of a a double dip. Let me switch gears here a little bit, Uh, maybe something that I'm more comfortable talking about. Uh, There's an article out, and call this uh, under the category title, perhaps. You heard it here first. We've been talking about commercial real estate, especially commercial real estate here in New York City. There was a great article in today's Wall Street Journal. I think the print edition of today's Wall Street Journal came out last night. And it's worth quoting extensively here, because I think the numbers uh, are quite compelling. Quote Nationwide, signs of stress are mounting. Prices on lower rated commercial mortgage bonds nationwide have fallen in recent weeks. The extra yield or spread investors demand to hold a double B rated CMBS bond over 10 year U.S. treasuries climbed nearly 20 percentage points as of Thursday, according to data uh, from the firm Trip to their widest levels since the financial crisis. Some bonds have fallen from $0.70 to $0.50 on the dollar, depending upon the industry and credit rating, bankers said. In aggregate, more than $3 billion worth of loans back in commercial property, uh, in the five boroughs are delinquent, that's here in New York City, uh, according to Trap. and loans in credit negotiations, total an additional $4 billion. This is significant, significant money.
3: Yeah, so I mean, when we talk about the... uh... The unfolding, uh, and we talk about the, yeah. um, you know, the bankruptcy. Uh, the uh, w- what is uh Rao called? Uh, I-, I think he calls it something like the bankruptcy phase. Insolvency, um, I think. Insolvency, right? Yeah. Uh, th- th- that's exactly where we are now in terms of thinking of that, because the knock-on effects of all of these things are, uh, you know, financial instability, uh, a potential financial crisis. All these things come together. Lost consumption. Uh, lost production uh spread uh, credit spreads widening and then uh, eventually bankruptcy insolvency liquidation etc and then you, at the same time you have the policy response i mean what's happening in the united states not just in terms of the healthcare response but as you were saying uh you know people are talking about no stimulus so when does that impasse uh become a problem i think that we really do have to think of uh, a, da- a lot of downside risk in the U.S. in particular, because uh, this is a, a a problem which is likely to go on for a considerable period of time. Yeah, very much. And uh, you
1: know, to continue forward, this 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 just continues, right? So uh, appraisals this year on more than one hundred struggling buildings with commercial mortgage debt uh, showed property values fell twenty seven. Percent on average, according to data from Wells Fargo, uh, you know it goes on to discuss uh, additional the potential link throughs to other aspects of the economy coming in 2021. You know those of us who were here for the financial crisis remember, I believe in July of 2007 that uh, a series of Bear Stearns hedge funds failed, and that was probably the first major canary in the coal mine uh, during the Great Financial Crisis. And uh, at the time, you know, this was something that was really sloughed off. It was something that was, well, that's isolated. This is idiosyncratic. This is something that just these particular funds uh, have exposure to. And of course, we later learned that that simply was not the case. This was something that was very much at the core of uh, the financial system. Now, I'm not suggesting that that's necessarily going to be the case this time. But commercial real estate, CMBS, it's something to keep an eye on. And these numbers um, are significant
3: yeah and don't say you you're not suggesting necessarily, uh right. but really, what you're saying is 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 that you know the downside risk is there it's it's severe. uh people exactly. think that we can get through a pandemic, you know, and we can be off to the races on uh, risk assets in the economy uh and it's as if it never happened, and we're not even fully the way through now we're in a second wave. I mean, there is going to be a reckoning as a result of that and rather than continue down this path of uh you know negativity on the public policy side. Let me give you a, a different spin because I spoke to a guy earlier today, uh, um, Joel uh, Greenblatt, who is a money manager, and he's saying to himself, "Look, you know, I'm a money manager, and uh, it's not like uh, managing money is the best thing in the world in terms of uh, the things that we're we're doing to help society." But I want to give back in some capacity, and let me give you some ideas about public policy that we can use going forward. Things that we can help in terms of education, that we can help in terms of technology, uh, retirement savings, uh, and also fixing the financial system. So great interview uh, to talk to him today. You know, much more upbeat than the kinds of things that we're talking to. So there are some solutions out there, and hopefully. You know, when this goes up in a a few days, uh, people will think, yeah, uh, this is an optimistic uh, view. Here are some solutions we can pick from. Yeah. Well, it's going to be a compelling piece.
1: I'm really looking forward to seeing it. I guess I would just add, maybe with a touch of cynicism, that in order to search for solutions, you need to have something before that, which is the recognition that there is a problem. Right. Uh, And when we think about our lifetimes, our parents' lifetimes, our grandparents' lifetimes, even in the most just like fundamental and colloquial sense, uh, the United States led the world out of crisis. Uh, And when you look at these numbers from China, uh, and I'm not being gloom and doom here, and I'm not saying that this is an, an, an irretrievable path that we've gone down and that it's inexorable, but you need to start thinking about recalibrating public policy uh, to ensure that the United States remains a superpower into the 21st century. Hard to believe that we're at a point where we're saying those words, um, but, uh, but you know, it's something that we really need to think about. And I'm really interested in, in, in seeing your piece uh, and hearing about some of these potential solutions, because... We really need to be looking for them.
3: Yeah, and that does harken back to what I was talking about in terms of what's happening in Asia. You know, there is a a future that I can see out there in which uh, you know that that whole sphere coalesces around a China-centric model that leaves the United States and Europe uh, to the side, and uh, that's not one in which you know America is necessarily flourishing. Uh, uh, But again, to go on the the, uh, the positive. Joel uh, Greenblatt, he had some more positive things to say that weren't even policy uh, oriented. He was talking about you and me, the average investor, what we can do. He was saying, you know, I'm a long-term investor, right? Uh, if I were running a fund, which I am, I have to worry about uh, the the people who are in that fund. Uh, you know, if I underperform at one particular time, over a quarter, over a year, over eighteen months, whatever it might be. Uh, I you know, people are going to start pulling their money. But you, you and I, Ash, we can uh, we can have a much longer-term time horizon. The key is not to get caught up in the short term, think about what the long term is. He was very bullish actually on what he would call uh growth value stocks, I guess. Uh meaning that, you know, when you think about growth and value, he doesn't think of them necessarily as being uh independent from one another there are many uh, sh- uh places where the froth is not where you can pick up some uh value and if you think from a longer term perspective uh he doesn't think those uh, those companies are overvalued at all so very positive uh and since he's one of the you know the biggest value investors out there that's existed uh i i took note when he said those things yeah very much
1: you know, talking about the search for solutions, uh, our own CEO and co-founder is out today with a new piece on Bitcoin called The Life Raft, uh, Away From." and he's talking about it as a as a life raft uh, away from central bank digital currencies. It's a really compelling piece. Uh, if you are a Real Vision subscriber, it's on the platform now. Check it out. I think we're talking about getting it out to a broader audience. But you basically can hear Raoul's big picture thesis about how Bitcoin is the cockroach of finance. It's impossible to kill, Uh, and he looks at it from the perspective uh, of a transitional phase uh, between the legacy financial system, which he sees us in today, uh, moving toward a new digital financial system uh, powered by central bank digital currencies in the future, and that this could really be a transitional phase and a place potentially uh, where investors uh, can look uh, and at least think about uh, what what their own situation is uh, and assess that area. It's a really compelling piece, I think.
3: Interesting. You know, um I, I think Jack uh he he was telling me about that earlier today. And also I did see that Bitcoin went to 12,000 or is near 12,000. So there there there's been some recent upside so people might be interested in that. Yeah, very interesting. And you know, from my own personal journey that uh, I've become more interested in that space personally. We got to get you on the crypto platform, Ed. When you <laughs> yeah. do you do first piece? And yeah, yeah. you know, like uh, if you and I we won't be talking but we got to get you uh Get you wearing your shirt too. I think that must be the source of your optimism today. (laughs) You got on the. the Just putting it on made made me feel good. I have to say, Ash, and I'll feel better if I have it on and you have it on at the same time.
1: We will definitely plan that. I was shocked when you pulled that. I had
3: no idea that you were wearing it under the jacket. Yeah, I just got it today. So I, I ran upstairs and got it. I was like, Ah, yeah, let me put this on right now. Well done, Ed. Yeah, great to talk to you as usual, Ash. Thanks for joining us.